0: So our continuing study of what we're we're calling the first principles of our faith, the the first six chapters in our confession lay down the very foundations of the Christian faith. Uh, As we've looked over the, the previous study, we looked at the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures and the doctrine of God, theology proper. And now we're beginning to apply those two foundational pieces, the Word of God and God Himself, as we study the decree of God. And so we're, we're in chapter 3 of our confession. If you have a copy of that, you'll want to have that with you. We'll be looking this morning at paragraphs 3 and 4 in the chapter of God's decree. But let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us as we wade into this uh, very deep water. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the mercy that you've shown to us. We thank you for... The particular mercy of making yourself known to us, that we are not, we are not left to our own wisdom, our own devices. We are, we are not uh, groping in the dark, as it were, trying to discern who you are and what you have done, what you have declared from all of eternity, but rather you have made that known to us in your word. And we pray that your spirit will be our, our helper this morning to give us uh, the light of your word, give us understanding. Uh, but also bring to us uh, a, a greater devotion to you, that you would fill not just our minds with knowledge of you, but fill our hearts with a desire to worship you more and more because you're worthy of that, and it is for our good that we worship you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look today at paragraphs three and four, the the, the lens begins to sharpen a little bit, and I, and I imagine... This is probably a crude illustration to some degree, but uh, we, we look out at the, at, the, at the light around us, and of course the sun shines its light upon everything. But we've all had that experience. You take the magnifying glass, and you hold it up into the sun, and you get the angle right and the, the distance right. It will focus that light into a very sharp and even hot point, right? Well, as we think about the doctrine of, dec- of God's decree, there is a focal point, God has decreed all things whatsoever that will come to pass, and by his providential rule, he causes all those things to come to pass. But there is a particular aspect of his decree that the scriptures focus upon, and our confession, mirroring the scriptures, refocuses on that, and it's the doctrine of predestination. Because it is, it is true that God has governed, has declared, and decreed all things, but in particular, the focus of that divine, eternal decree is the election of men and angels to eternal glory in and with himself. That's the focal point. Uh, It is not the focal point of his decree that he knows and has determined when a sparrow falls to the ground. That is a true statement, and he's done that, but that's not the focal point of his decree. His focal point is upon bringing himself glory, and we'll see in the language of our confession, the glorious, His glorious grace and His glorious justice being revealed in and through. Both, we'll see, men and angels. So, as we look at paragraphs 3 and 4, I'll read them in just a moment, but I'm going to outline the two paragraphs together in, in this way. One is what I just articulated, the special focus of God's decree. The special focus of God's decree is predestination or the election of Of men and angels. And secondly, we need to think about the scope of God's election. Uh, When God has purposed in eternity to, to have a people of God for himself, in himself and with himself, and along with that, even angelic beings with himself for eternity. We need to define the scope there. And then thirdly, let's consider the immutability the unchanging nature of God's decree. There's an unchangeableness to God's decree that's, that's very important to us, not just theoretically and abstractly, but very practically. Uh, it, it is the substance of our faith is that this decree cannot and will not change. So let's read the two paragraphs. I'm just going to read them consecutively. And then we'll, we'll dive in and consider the special focus that's given to us here. Chapter 3 and paragraph 3. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. And then paragraph four, these angels and men, thus predestined, excuse me, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. So let's think in the first place about the special focus of God's decree. Uh, The the special or particular focus of his decree is this divine election, or this divine predestination. The special focus is his grace by which he elected some men and angels for eternal life through Jesus Christ. And when we say predestinated or foreordained, this means that this is chosen by God from eternity according to his grace alone. There's nothing else in the equation except for the determinate will and counsel of our gracious and good God is the only basis of eternal election. There is no basis in us. There's no basis in our works. There's no basis in our character. There's no basis in our performance. There's no basis in our continuation in believing the gospel. The entire sum and substance of God's eternal election is His gracious act alone. In Matthew 25, this is one of the footnotes that you'll see, referenced in paragraph 3. Matthew 25, verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus is speaking about eternity, that God has prepared before the ages began, before he ever said, let there be anything. God had purposed and prepared a kingdom for his people. But we also see the special focus of God's decree is the manifestation of his glory. Look look back at paragraph 3. By the decree of God for the manifestation, or the revelation, the revealing, the displaying of his glory. And then it says to the pray skipping down a little bit, to the praise of his glorious grace, and then it ends with to the praise of his glorious justice. So what is central in this doctrine of election is the glory of God. And our and our confession reveals what the scriptures teach, that his glory is revealed in in two distinct ways. They're, and they're not opposites, they're, they're companions. In his mercy and in his justice in his glorious grace and also according to his glorious justice the manifestation of his glory and this is this phrase is taken right out of paul's epistle to the ephesian church and you'll notice also there's a footnote here in ephesians 1 5 and 6 and if we read that text, you'll recognize the phrase, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, and here's the phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace. Word for word, that's the phrase adopted in our confession of faith. This, this phrase is in common with Westminster and with the Savoy, so all of the Reformed were confessing the, the very same words here. This is to the praise of God's glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved but there is another way that god's glory is manifested that it's that it's displayed revealed and that's in his glorious justice and, and in this place we do have a departure right? departure is not the right word we we have a difference of wording in the the baptist confession second london d- differs from westminster and savoy in the last phrase so in 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 my copy of the Confession, we read, to the praise of his glorious grace, there's a semicolon. From there on, the Baptists word this differently. And and it's a significant difference. It's not a doctrinal difference. But it is a significant difference. And and hopefully I can explain why. The Baptists say, others being left, others referring to those not elected to the grace of life. Those not chosen by God from eternity to display His glorious grace and mercy are those who are elected from eternity to display or manifest the glorious justice of God. But here's the difference. The Westminster Confession says, and others foreordained to everlasting death. Others foreordained to everlasting death. The Baptists change that and others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. Now, do you hear the difference? It's, 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 a, it's a helpful distinction. Again, the doctrine itself is not different. The Baptists are not confessing a different view or a different understanding of God's decree, and particularly they're not, they're not confessing a different understanding of God's divine election. But here's what it does. We, we notice in paragraph one that God has from all of eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. He has decreed it himself. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin nor hath fellowship with any therein. What we're dealing with here is ultimately the doctrine of reprobation. The doctrine of reprobation is that there are some who will never taste the grace of the gospel revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will perish for eternity. They will for eternity experience the just condemnation of God, the holy wrath of God poured out upon them justly for their sin. But God is not the author of their reprobation. And see, the the Westminster Confession, this is not what they teach, but the the, the door, you can see, is sort of cracked open by saying that others are foreordained to everlasting death. See, the the door's cracked open there for someone to make an accusation. See, God is causing their reprobation and ultimately their damnation. Do you see? And what the Baptists have said, no, what's happening is God is leaving them because he had no obligation to intercede. He had no obligation to rescue any sinner, much less every sinner. And God has, according to our confession, left others, those whom he has not elected to life, he's left alone to act in their sin, or according to their sin, to their just condemnation. And in that, his perfect, glorious justice is revealed. So again, this takes us back to the fact that God is not the author of sin, and therefore he can't be the author of the reprobation of some men or angels. Jim Renehan makes a a helpful comment. He says, The Paedo-Baptist confessions both use the term foreordain when speaking of the destiny of sinners, while the Baptist confession omits that word and presents the doctrine in terms of preterition, meaning there's a, there's a, a leaving to themselves. The act by which God passes by sinners, leaving them in their sins and facing just condemnation. Now there, there are ways that we could think about this, even as as parents, imperfectly. We We can see this. Our, our Lord Jesus makes a comparison, and he says, you being evil, speaking of parents, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. So he reasons, therefore, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to his children? So using that same sort of paradigm, that same sort of, of, of logic, as, as parents, there are times, particularly as our children grow older, we leave them at times to their own folly. You ever had that experience as a parent? Well, you know what? You're just going to find that out yourself. You're going to have to find that out. Sometimes even little ones. You, you, you told them five times, don't touch that, don't touch that. Um, that stove's hot and at some point they're going to touch it it's not a moral wound but they're going to learn themselves hopefully the brighter ones do right they learn we being evil know how to do this with our children how much more is our heavenly father able to do this and what he's doing here what we're communicating is that for some he leaves them to their sin he leaves one who is dead in his sins or her sins to their own desires, and their own desires, their own sinful deeds, will then condemn them. Doctor Renahan goes on in this same section. He has a footnote that I found helpful. He's quoting from a man named John Arrowsmith. It's a great name, isn't it, Aerosmith? But he's he's one of the Westminster Divines. So we're, here, we're looking at a 17th century. Puritan, and Rinahan quotes him as saying he speaks of the, quote, remarkable difference between election and preterition, noting that election is itself a proper cause of salvation and all associated graces, whereas negative reprobation is no proper cause either of damnation, damnation itself or of the sin that bringeth it, but an antecedent only. So what he's saying is that for God to elect positively those who would belong to him, God becomes the proper cause of that salvation. But for God simply to pass over, to leave them to themselves, God is not a proper cause in that sense. He is not the proper cause, as Aerosmith says, either of damnation itself or of the sin that bringeth it, but an antecedent only. So see, God is not the author of sin. He's not the author of reprobation. But of course, objections always come at this point, don't they? And, and you know the objections. If you've talked to family members or friends uh, who are Arminian or, or who are agnostic or, or, or some other you know, self-identified category with respect to their understanding of God, and who he is, and his sovereignty. These these objections always come. Well, then how is God just if he condemns men before they ever had a chance to know him? Or how is God just if he condemns men even before he made them? How is this fair that God will punish eternally some men and women, even though he didn't choose them from eternity? Of course, we know the Apostle Paul dealt with that objection directly, didn't he? In, in Romans 9, when Paul's working through this doctrine of election, he's using Jacob and Esau as, as, a, as a case study or case studies of this divine election. In fact, that's one of the footnotes here in our, in our confession in paragraph 3. You'll see the footnote there, Romans 9, 22 and 23. But I'm going to read a little bit of the, the broader section here, beginning in verse 19. The Apostle Paul by means of the Holy Spirit, says this, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? See, Paul, as he's writing the letter, he's dealing with almost like an imaginary interlocutor, an imaginary heckler in the crowd. And he says, you will say then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. See, Paul's wrestling with this objection. It says, first of all, who are you, O man, to even ask the question? Will, will, will Will the one who is made say to his maker, why have you made me like this? No human being has a right to demand that of God, to to summon God in, to to subpoena God in a sense and ask him, put him on the stand and ask him these questions. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He goes on and does give an answer. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Paul is saying that that God in his infinite wisdom, in order to display his infinite goodness and infinite mercy, the glorious grace of the gospel, he provided this contrast. He provided this contrast so that those who God has called into his Son, that we who know Christ... will be enlivened, be en- en- enabled to praise him all the more as we contemplate the fact that he was not obligated in any way to choose me for life. He was under no obligation whatsoever to make you a partaker of his grace. A- a- and so the, those whom he has passed over then become the contrast. They become the black velvet against which the diamonds shine all the more brightly. Chad Van Dixhorn is a a, a contemporary Presbyterian pastor and scholar, and he wrote a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's called Confessing the Faith, A Reader's Guide to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And again, I've noted that our Baptist forefathers tweaked the wording but this is not a different doctrine with respect to election and reprobation. From, uh, we're not making a different doctrine from our, distinguishing us from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in that way. And so Van Dixhorn's words here are appropriate to our confession as well. Listen to what he says We shall never understand divine punishment until we have an understanding of our own depravity with its wider implications, as well as an accurate portrait. Of the comprehensive purity of God. Listen to this. Few who questions few who question God's decrees have the patience to investigate the character of his holiness or the nature of our sin. So when Paul says, Who are you, O man? He has a particular man in mind. The man who is unwilling to examine the holiness of God and meditate upon that. He has in mind the man who's unwilling to consider his own depravity to look deeply into the mirror of God's word and see himself as he truly is, any man who's done that, any woman who's done that, probably won't come up with that same question. God, why, are you really just that you've passed over some? We will be too busy praising him for his glorious grace that he didn't pass over me. You will be too busy praising him that he did not pass over you. By the way, <clears throat> for those of you who are wanting some, some further study on this, uh, one of the terms that, that I've, I use frequently, and it's, it's the term I've heard from Dr. Renahan, is to read the confession sideways. So if you want to read sideways, and you want to trace out where, how this doctrine of election is, is woven through the rest of the tapestry of our confession, I'll give you some other references, and you can go home and, and kind of read through the confession and see how this doctrine is worked out. So you'll see this in chapter 7. In chapter 7, paragraphs 2 and 3. This is the chapter on God's covenant. Then in chapter 8 of Christ the mediator, you see it in paragraphs 1 and 5, where Christ is the mediator for those whom God has elected from eternity. Then you also see it in chapter 10 of effectual calling, in paragraph 1 and in paragraph 4. I'm sorry, in paragraph 1. And then in chapter 11, on justification, you'll see it in paragraphs 1 and 4. Just kind of giving you an Easter egg hunt here. Go and and search those out and find those references. But you'll also see it in chapter 12, on the doctrine of adoption. Election and adoption are are inextricably linked together. They can't be separated. So that's in paragraph 1. And then in chapter 17 the chapter on the perseverance of the saints, we find election once again. What is the foundation, saints, of our perseverance? It's the electing grace of God from all of eternity. Because if, it, if the answer to that question is anything other than the electing grace of God from eternity, we're in trouble, aren't we? If the answer to the question, your continued belief or your continued performance, your continued obedience, we're all in trouble. My favorite John MacArthur quote. If it were possible to lose your salvation, you would. Every time. So let's think ne- next about the scope of God's election. And this perhaps may be the most surprising section, the most uh, surprising doctrine that we confess, in, in, particularly in this chapter. The scope of God's election includes not only men, but angels you ever thought about that? That God's electing grace extends not only to men, but to angels as well. So we see in paragraph 3, By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined. Then in paragraph 4, These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed. Does that surprise you? that angels are included in this doctrine of election. It doesn't get a lot of attention, but, but it has to be true. I mean, and and the, the confession is really just, just picking up the, the exact words that the Apostle Paul uses. You'll notice there the footnote of 1 Timothy 5.21. This is in paragraph 3 in our confession. The foot, first very first footnote, in fact, is 1 Timothy 5.21, in which we read this. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. See, Paul, in a sense, puts Timothy under oath and says, I, I, I charge you, I call you under oath in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. It is not the case, of course that righteous angels need redemption. See, men who are now fallen in Adam need the grace of God orchestrated and manifested in his eternal decree of election so that we might be saved and reconciled to him. Do do angels need that? Do they need God's gracious dealing with them in that same way? No. Those angels who, the two-thirds of the angels who did not fall, who did not rebel against God, do not need redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. They're sinless. And, and we know from the Scriptures that fallen angels will have no opportunity to repent. There will, there will be no opportunity to, to be saved. So this election has to do with the number of these angels. It does remain a fact that Christ has come to redeem all of creation. So let's let's think this through, because sometimes we we're, we're, we have to go back now also to our the first chapter in our confession. We confess about the Word of God that it, that the Word of God is all those things that are expressly set down, but also those things which are necessarily contained. And so we have, in one sense. Paul expressly sets this down, that there are elect angels. But how do we think about that with respect to Christ? Because why does the confession say, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated and foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ? we, We can easily understand, I think, why we can say that men are ordained through... Men are, are ordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ. We know that. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Every son and daughter of Adam can only be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. But the question comes with respect to angels. Is there a reconciliation that has to happen? And the answer is no. Well, then why we confess that it's still through Jesus Christ that angels have eternal life. Well, let's reason through this. First, we know that angels are created beings, right? Angels are not eternal. Angels didn't always exist. God spoke the angels into being as part of his creating all things. Secondly, we know that the righteousness, the perfection, the sinlessness of angels was necessarily mutable. It was possible for that to change, wasn't it? Because the scriptures tell us for a third of them, they did change. They followed after Satan, Lucifer, who said, I will be like the Most High, and a third of the angelic realm followed after him in rebellion, and they were cast out of heaven. They were were cast out of God's presence. in order for the angels to be preserved for eternity. They are to put it upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do we get there? i want to consider a couple of passages, very brief passages, but these are, these are profound passages. In Hebrews, first one is in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. This is speaking of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Does that universe include righteous angels? Again, angels are not eternal. They're not self-existent. On whom do angels depend for their continuing existence? Christ. Well, then in Colossians 1, I think Paul makes this even more clear. In Colossians 1.16, he says, for by him, this is, for through Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The old King James says, all things consist And and the the Word has the idea, they continue to be. They continue in existence because of the abiding Word of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is is not a one-time creative act where He spoke them into being and they exist on their own from there on. It is the case that every molecule, every cell, every electron, proton, neutron, quarks, what all those elemental properties are, all of them are held together by the word of, of the power, or the word of Christ, and by his power. This includes, Paul says explicitly, things both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. So in order for those righteous angels to continue in being for eternity... They are dependent upon the gracious work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not gracious in the sense of overcoming their sin, but gracious in the sense of preserving them and causing them to be in his presence unalterably and immutably for eternity. It is because of the Lord Jesus Christ that there is no possibility of another angelic rebellion it happened once, why couldn't it happen again? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why we confess that it's by the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ. But we need to make one last point, and it's the primary emphasis of paragraph four. So we've seen not only the the special focus of God's eternal decree, which is his glory in the grace of election. But we also see his, the scope of that election. That scope of it extends both to men and angels. And lastly, paragraph four communicates to us something of the immutability, the unchangeable nature of God's election. And so the point of this is, is to communicate to God's people a certainty, a stability with respect to our election. So the paragraph reads, these angels and men, these angels and men which were dis- the subject of paragraph 3, those same angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, again, we could put in parentheses, to eternal life in Christ, are particularly and unchangeably designed. And their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. When it says they are particularly and unchangeably designed, it means that this was not a group election. Sometimes you will hear the argument, um, most often from, I think, well-intentioned Arminians, when they're wrestling with this doctrine of election or predestination, they will say, well, what what happened was, it wasn't that God elected individual men and women and boys and girls to eternal life, but he elected a people. So the election was only or merely corporate. So, for example, he elected Israel as a nation to be his chosen people. And, And who was true Israel exercising the faith of their father Abraham and who was not true Israel, well, that was still determined by the individual person. Or, under the New Testament, under the New Covenant, God elected a people, Peter says, God has chosen you, a holy people, for his own possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and and some will say, well, that election is the corporate, he's elected the church. But who's in and who's out is still determined by the individual choice of an individual man or woman or child. And, and I'm sure you've heard those, those same kinds of, of arguments. But what the confession is, is pushing back on that and saying that's not true. That's not what the scriptures teach. These men and angels are not only ordained as a group. I mean, that, there's, a, there, there's, a, there's a true statement that God has corporately elected his people. But it's more than that, he has particularly and unchangeably designed and, and the when we hear the word designed, we think more in terms of, 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 of an architect uh, creating plans for a building, or for an engineer creating schematics for a widget of some kind. But the, 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 the older use of the word, you hear the, the, the root, same root word in the word designated, it's the idea of choice, choosing. So, when, when the confession says are particularly and unchangeably designed, we could also say designated. Or again, chosen. And they're chosen particularly, meaning individually, and unchangeable. And just in case we're not clear what they mean by that, the next phrase is and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be, it cannot be increased or diminished. So, God elects individually so that they can become a corporate body and that individual election is definite it is unchangeable the number cannot be increased or diminished second timothy 2 19 again these are the the two footnotes that we find in paragraph four but god's firm foundation stands bearing this seal the lord knows those who are his and Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. There's a certainty. There's an objective quality to the number and to the scope of God's election, both for men and angels. And then in John 13, 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. This is the words of Christ himself. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, Of course he's speaking here of Judas, because Jesus is declaring that of the twelve there were eleven faithful men and one devil, and all of this was according to the sovereign eternal decree of the triune God. and so these angels and men that have that God has predestinated, that he has foreordained, foreordained are chosen particularly individually specially it is not as if god has said okay here's sometimes we we will, in the business world we'll work with this we have a certain quota you know what we're we're going to we're going to to hire 100 people this next year don't care who the 100 are we haven't chosen those yet we've just chosen a number and so the confession wants to guard against the idea that god has chosen you know, 144,000 or something like that. That God has chosen a certain number and that, you know, that's, that's one of the, the the fallacies in the Jehovah's Witnesses is that their false prophet originally forecasted according to scriptures that God would save 144,000 souls. That was his election. By the certain date, I forget the date. I didn't look all this up ahead of time. But then there came a problem once that date had passed and they had to go back and revise everything because Christ had not yet come and said, so, well, it was 144,000 that actually make it to the higher realms of heaven and the rest of you, the rest of us, well, we've got a lower ranking to look forward to but it's still better than the alternative. I mean, that's basically Jehovah's Witness theology, their their eschatology in a nutshell. But they had this idea of election that was a fixed number but not necessarily fixed individuals. And what we confess is that it's particularly and unchangeably designed and the number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Well, how should we then respond to this? How do we think about this? There's a very helpful, and we'll get to it here in a couple of weeks, the very, in paragraph seven, the very last paragraph, says this doctrine, or the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. That men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So if there's anything about the doctrine of of election that would stir up pride in our hearts, we don't understand the doctrine of election properly, biblically. The the only proper response to this is first of all praise. of, of, Of just abject thanksgiving to God. For the manifestation of his glorious grace to us. But the other thing that should necessarily coincide with that is, is a humility. If we really understand the holiness of God, and, and we can only know him in part, we see through a glass dimly in this life, But the scriptures are are, are plain to us, are clear to us, uh, something of the the nature of God's holiness, his his infinite holiness, his incomprehensible holiness. And if we begin to grasp that, humility has to be the consequence of it, doesn't it? If we begin to to grasp our own depravity, and again, we won't plumb the depths of our depravity in this life, praise be to God for that. We, we will know ourselves in part. We, we will know something of our depravity, and, and the more you mature in Christ, the more you are aware of your own sinfulness. And the more that you're aware of your own sinfulness, and you, and you, you have that in, in one hand while you meditate upon the doctrine of God's eternal election, the only proper reconciliation of those two things is humility a thanksgiving, a praise. But also, the other response to this is it ought to, and this is not a paradox, this is not a contradiction to humility, but it, it is an increase in our confidence. It's an increase in our confidence. See, humility is not a lack of confidence. Sometimes we think the humble people are ones who lack confidence. That's not, humility is not the lack of confidence. It is confidence rightly placed. This confidence rightly placed. On whom is our confidence placed? The one who has elected us from eternity. For the manifestation of his own glory, for the manifestation of his glorious grace in those whom he has elected to life, and the manifestation of his glorious justice for those whom he has passed over. So it ought to increase our confidence. If you are in Christ, saints, it's all of grace. It's all based on God's eternal wisdom. It's all based on his purposes. It's all based on his grace. It never depended upon you. From eternity, from before you were born, from before your great, 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 great grandfather was born, God has set his love upon you. Not because of anything done in you. That's Paul's point in Romans 9, isn't it? Before Jacob and Esau were even born, before they had opportunity to do anything, good or bad, God had set his electing grace upon Jacob and he had passed over Esau. Because God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And so because it's based on that infinite and eternal wisdom and purposes of God, because it never depended upon us, what ought that do to our degree of confidence that we will persevere to the end? if our confidence rests in Christ and upon the graciousness of of God revealed in in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God manifested from eternity, that that ought to increase our confidence, shouldn't it? And consequently, our eternal standing with God depends upon the word of the risen and exalted Christ. It does not, it cannot depend upon anything that I have done or you have done or that we could ever do. It depends upon him alone. So yes, this doctrine of election has been the source of, of much confusion, uh, even consternation and heartache, and some of you have wrestled with that yourself, uh, particularly if you, if you grew up in, kind of a, uh, in, in more of an Arminian kind of background and coming to grasp and understand the doctrines of grace. For some people, it's it's, it's almost immediate. The scales fall off as a, I I see it. And I can't not see it because my own personal testimony, I wasn't looking for God, I wasn't seeking Him. I know that God sought me out and found me and saved me. But there are others, you know, that really wrestle with that. Because there's something in every one of us that wants to claim a share in our justification. There's something in every one of us. That just just give, me, give me just a little credit, God. I mean, you get most of it, but give me just a little credit. And the doctrine of, the, of eternal election shatters that. It dismisses even the, the idea of human beings being responsible for anything other than our own co- condemnation. It dismisses the idea of any of us being in any way, shape, or form responsible for the grace that God has lavished upon us. So may this give to us uh, humility. May it fill our hearts with greater praise. May it grant to his people a greater confidence because our standing with him is not resting and depending upon us. It's dependent upon his divine and eternal election and that being worked out through the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Any questions? We're short on time, but yeah. Huh. Uh mm-hmm. huh. Well, that passage has to be interpreted in light of everything else the scriptures teach to us about God's electing work. And so, yes, the harvest is plentiful. Why? Because from eternity, God has chosen a particular, what's the phrase, predestinated and foreordained a particular and unchangeable number. And that's why Jesus can confidently say, go get them pray that the, wor- that the Lord would raise up other workers to go and, and, and seek after those lost sheep. Uh, th- that's why, incidentally, that the entire modern world missions movement was founded by Calvinists because Calvinists had the assurance, the certainty that God had determined a specific number of people from every nation and tongue and tribe and people and he commanded his church to go and get them. To go and preach the gospel to them so that they might hear and believe and that all that God had appointed to eternal life would, by the means he had appointed, come to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, 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 the only the, the true confidence for missions in that respect. And so that, that passage illustrates it. The true confidence there is because God has already determined the number. And he says, by the way, it's a big number. Amen? Spencer, do you mind praying for us?